CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots Editor-in-Chief, here with the Managing Editor of The Glow Up, Maisha Kai. Hi. Maisha, today we are talking with an illustrious, award-winning author. He has written more than 60 critically acclaimed books over the course of his career, including the best-selling Easy Rollins mystery series. And that author is, of course... Mr. Walter Mosley. Walter has written across almost all genres, from mystery to science fiction, nonfiction, erotica. He's written plays. He's even dabbled in graphic novels. He's also the winner of multiple awards, including a Grammy, several NAACP Image Awards, a Pan America Lifetime Achievement Award, and most recently, he became the first Black man to receive the National Book Awards Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters for Lifetime Achievement in Writing. What a mouthful. I mean, seriously, because Walter is truly the definition of a prolific writer. And he's an educator, and he's sharing his talents and wisdom now with his very own masterclass, which is super exciting and may have been the thing that got me to sign up. You know, I love that he's actually dabbled in so many genres and and tried so many things. I think that as hard as it is to start writing in the first place, then it's so easy to get yourself pigeonholed into things. And this is a man who didn't start pursuing a writing career until he was in his mid-30s. And I think that that's a really important lesson to communicate to all of us would-be writers out there who haven't completely gotten it off the ground yet. So I'm so excited that he's bringing this to the masses with the masterclass, but especially that he's bringing it to us here on It's Lit. No, I I am a great admirer of Mosley's and... Just the fact that he's been able to be prolific in so many different genres that I love. The fact that he's been able to see some of his work adapted for television and film. Like, it's just amazing. And so I was really excited to, you know, to pick his brain and get at some of those writerly secrets that he's imparting to his masterclasses. I totally agree, because he really, in many ways, is the prototype for what so many writers are aspiring to do today. Totally. And with that said... I think it's time to get to the interview. Absolutely. Hi, Walter. Welcome to It's Lit. Okay. Well, thank you. I'm (laughs) glad to be here. (laughs) So we, Maisha and I, cannot believe that we have the good fortune of having you with us today. Like, you are truly a master of your craft. And we have a lot of questions. But before we dig into those, since this is a podcast about writers, we like to ask all our guests to start to name at least one book or books that were a game changer for you, that was life-affirming, life-altering, they blew your mind. What book would that be? You know, it's it's so interesting, you know, because what books are important and, and when they're important 
you know, have to do with, you know, who you are at that moment. So certainly the first book for me is Winnie the Pooh. It's really the first whole book I ever read. And I was amazed, you know, by how, you know, things happened. I, I wasn't really thinking about them, but I was still amazed by how much reading a story about this, you know, this creature in this place could come alive in my mind. It wasn't in the book anymore. It was like in my head. And I just love that. I, you know, I think that that was great. At a later time, it, it would be The Stranger by Albert Camus writing about, you know, his philosophical life in um, North Africa. And, and then at some point along the way, I mean, there are a lot of books, but it's an, another point along the way is A Hundred Years of Solitude. Okay. <laughs> because, you know, I, I mean, it was just, it was like a writer writing, but he wasn't writing about a writer writing, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, that's like, that's the greatest thing that a, a writer can do. Because all writers want to write about writers writing and, and it's boring as a rule, but it's interesting if you can do it right. And, and certainly that book, you know, does it. And, you know, and then somewhere, you know, in between all those things, the likes and news and uh, and the simple stories, Etheridge Knight and his uh, collection of poems, Belly Song. There, you know, and really, anyway. Yeah, okay, I'm just going to say those things. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, there's so many. I mean, you make an excellent point that often the book that's the most meaningful to you has to do with, you know, how old you are and what time period you're in, like what frame of mind you're in at the time. Like I can remember reading, you know, The Bluest Eye when I was a teenager which is the perfect time to read that particular novel because it's so You know, it's so funny too because 100 Years of Solitude is a book I read over and over again for that exact reason because it hits me differently every year or three that I return to it. And I'm actually rereading it now. So as soon as you said it, I was like, ah. <laughs> a, a guy who I don't like as a, as a person when he's dead, but I did I wouldn't like <laughs> uh, T.S. Eliot, his last... A collection of poems is uh, the Four Quartets or Four Quartets. It's such an amazing book. I still don't understand it. I keep reading it because mm-hmm. I hope one day I'll understand it. But I, I understand little moments and snatches. It's so much fun to you know to be going through it. I don't, reading is a funny thing. I don't necessarily equate writing and reading. So I mean, mm. I think two completely different things. Mm-hmm. And and I think that because the university has to such a great degree tried to own writing one because you know they teach literature and two because they make so much money off writing programs and you know they come from a place where we ha- we're educated and well you know maybe you are but writers aren't educated you know writers are writers you know writers can be hanging out on the street corner in, in, in Atlanta you know prisons are filled with writers people just writing their stories down you know mm-hmm. and, Maybe it's just letters. A lot of people writing novels. A lot of people writing poetry. Etheridge Knight, that's where he comes from. You know, Etheridge Knight had the the, the, the biggest impact on me uh, as, as a writer. I was, uh, I was studying writing, but I hadn't gotten anywhere with it yet. And they had this uh, thing, you know, in New, New Jersey, you know, the big poetry uh, you know, conference. And I went there and all these people were reading. Carolyn Forche, Ruth Stone, and Etheridge. And, and the women were talking, you know, Ruth was talking about how she was, uh, you know, visiting a dictator in, in South America. And he, and he threw a bag of ears on the table. And that was, you know, where her poetry started. And then Ruth Stone was talking about the grinding poverty of Vermont and, you know, how, how that got her started. And, you know, I forget her name, but the, the other woman, her, she was 
homeless, living in a, her car with her two daughters when she was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't do all these things. I don't want to be homeless. I don't want to live with other people in my car. And then Etheridge came up. Now, yeah, Etheridge's been in prison. Etheridge's a heroin addict. Etheridge is everything, right? Etheridge says, when I became a poet, I was in the penitentiary. When I, I was in the penitentiary, I defined myself as a poet. He said, and once I defined myself as a poet, I went to the library to figure out what it was I had become. And that's that's the kind of the the freedom of writing. You know, Etheridge was right. He, he was he was free to write whenever he wanted to write and say whatever he wanted to say. And, and, and that's the thing that I love about being a writer. It's not necessarily something I love about being a reader. And they, those things might cross, you know, but I don't write about being a reader. I write about the world. You know, I write about the world I live in, the people I've known, where I wanted to go, where I, what I hope for, what I don't understand. You know, I know I, I, that's a very long answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a good answer. That was great. <laughs> but I have some more questions, of course. Uh-huh. I, I, so I do hope you have more answers. So. No, that was all my answers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, um, as you know, you know, 2020 has been quite a year and it marks 30 years since the publication of your first book, the now famous Devil in a Blue Dress. And since then, you've written over 50 more, but you've had like a few firsts this year, didn't you? All your numerous awards that you've won throughout your career. In April, you received the Robert Kirsch Award for Lifetime Achievement. And then in November, you became the first Black man to receive the National Book Foundation Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters. And, you know, while a lot of people might know you best for the Easy Rawlings mystery series, you've written across so many different genres from science fiction to young adult, erotica plays, screenplays, you know, even two books on the craft of writing. Now that you've kind of accumulated all these things, that you've now put them all together in this masterclass, what attracted you to this format and what can we expect from your masterclass? Well, you know, I, I, I love it. The same reason I wrote my two little short books on writing. People always come up to me, you know, when I'm doing a reading or I'm an event, they say, well, could, well, how do you write a novel? And it's not that much to write a novel, but it's a little bit too long for me to just sit down and say it. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, there's, you have to make more of a, a little bit more of a commitment than that. And so you know, the two books I wrote, I think, you know, really useful. And also the masterclass is also a thing where people can listen and, and learn and, and and kind of, you know, engage. And I think if I did it right, and if the people, you know, taking the, making the film basically uh, did it right, then people will be able to learn about writing. And I know a lot about writing and also about talking about writing. And I know a lot about talking about writing. <laughs> you know, one of my, uh, things that strikes me about you is, you know, you had this tremendous success, like right out the gate. You know, we referred to Devil in a Blue Dress, which, you know, when we look at the span of your work, like that was really just the beginning, right? But you, this is a, you know, a book that was made into a film. And these days it feels like so many writers, like that's the thing. Like I, I have to write something that gets adapted. And back when you did that, that was like actually a fairly rare thing, particularly I think for a Black writer in the early 90s. So, you know, as someone who has had their first novel adapted into a film and has since become a, a screenwriter. I mean, you are in writer's rooms now. What do you make of this phenomenon of, you know, page to screen, this kind of aspirational thing? And do you advise that big picture approach when you're talking to writers? Uh, when you say that big picture approach, what do you mean? 
Well, I guess I mean it pun intended, but yeah, them kind of thinking with this vision of it heading to the screen. Was that something that you ever had in mind? Is it something that you write with in mind now? Like if you're writing a novel? I never think about it. You know, because I mean, I I don't have to think about it. Somebody else can think about it. That's true. Like, you know, option your book. And I look at them and I'm thinking, well, you know, you're never going to make this movie, right? Okay, but I'll take your money. And then, you know, but, you know. If somebody asks me what I am, I'll say I'm a novelist because that's, you know, what I believe in. I like film, you know, and I enjoy it. But for me, I don't find the fact of watching a movie growing me intellectually or spiritually the way reading a book will. Because you make up the book while you're reading it. The film is telling you everything you should be looking at, what you should be thinking, how people sound, everything. Whereas when you're reading something, you do more than half of that work. The reader does. And so that makes your mind work overtime. Whereas film actually makes you stop and say, okay, I'll just become passive and I'll take this information in. And you know, maybe you, later you might think about it and it might mean something to you. I'm not trying to say it's useless, but it's not as, for me, as powerful as, as uh, the written word. Hi, I'm Jane McManus. And I'm Julie DeCaro. And we're here to invite you to listen to our new Deadspin podcast, The Ladies Room. Yeah, we can't promise it'll be all bathroom humor, but we can promise some. Plus, we're going to have all things related to sports and women and lots of great guests to talk about this with. And we also promise that you'll laugh a lot. And maybe think a little, too. Our first episode is dropping soon, so make sure to subscribe to The Ladies Room wherever you get your podcasts. So I know that, that there doesn't necessarily have to be like a formal, you know, pathway to becoming a writer. You know, a lot of people take the non-traditional route to it. What advice would you give an aspiring writer of any age? You know, the, the you know, it's the same thing I say about books. Like if I read Devil in a Blue Dress and you read it, okay, now I have my opinion on it, which is ever changing. And you have your opinion on it, which is different. And then, you know, somebody else reads it and somebody else reads it. When somebody comes to me and, and, and says, I'm an aspiring writer, you know, if I have time, I'll say, well, tell me about yourself. What, what, what's this about? You know, some people say I want to get rich. Some people say I want to you know, make a movie. Some people say want to say I want to tell the story of my life, uh, my, my uncle's life, my people's life. I want to talk about these experiences I had during this war. You know, there's all kinds of different ways you go about it. You know, I, th- I think so. There's a lot of different, you know, approaches to, you know, that person writing a novel. Now, there are some things that are almost always true, not always true, but almost always true that if, if you want to write a book, you should write every day. If you want to write a book, you should write every day. If you, if you want to write prose, you have to understand poetry. There's no, there's no question that most people who write prose don't do their best work writing it. They say, well, I'm just explaining what they did, what they said. I said, yeah, but, you know, there's they should be transported by the language. And the best way to know how to transport somebody by the language is understanding poetry. You don't have to really be able to write good poems. I'm not. But 
I know that I have to really understand metaphor. I've had to think through it and, you know, metaphor and, and, and simile and, and rhyme and music and uh, picking just the right word, you know, and then either deciding to use that word or to not use that word. I mean, there's so many things that, that, that we can learn, you know, from people like Gwendolyn, you know, that, that show us how to see the world outside the window and then to translate that world into, you know, music. So those, so those are some of the things that I would say. Oh, that's excellent. It's, it's, it's not, you know, we do this and do that and do this. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I like that it's just as unconventional as the route to writing itself, the advice. <laughs> <laughs> so, Walter, in your writing, you've also taken several trips uh, into the worlds of sci-fi and Afrofuturism, which we know we've seen a real surge in of, of late, especially this past year with series like, you know, HBO's Watchmen and Lovecraft Country. What attracted you to sci-fi? And is there anything you've seen that you wish you'd written or been in the writer's room for? Huh. No. That's, that's one thing. Is, the second thing is, I'm not, you know... I, Science fiction writers are the smartest people, and they're 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 continually trying to see the world in different ways, in impossible ways. You know, whether it's out in space, it's traveling through dimensions, it's you know, like uh, Octavia Butler going into the past. You know, uh, Samuel Delaney, who's probably the greatest science fiction writer America's ever had. You know, his 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 work is just amazing. You know, I mean, he's he's talking about uh, uh, gender and and time and the motivations of being human or even being human itself. He's talking about that way back, you know? And so, you know, I, I that's the thing I love about science fiction, it's really smart, you know, and at least I want to pretend like I'm smart. So, you know, I try to write, you know, science fiction stuff, you know, so, and that, and that's, it's really enjoyable and, and I'm, I'm very happy about it. That, and that, that, that's what sort of attracts me to it. And, you know, it, it's why I do it. But w when we start talking about film, you know, I'm really Rod Serling's Twilight Zone. You really can't beat that. And he was he really understood, you know, one thing that Rod Serling understood that so many science fiction writers don't is that there should be humor. We should be laughing also, along with being serious. And, you know, it's not just thinking about the future it's not you know the foundation trilogy by isaac asimov where you know we're going out and conquering the universe it's not about that it's 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 about how we understand knowledge you know how we deal with knowledge you know how we think about things i mean right, right now going through the the covid crisis two things uh, one, one thing a, a friend of mine said and another thing i was thinking about the other day the first thing my friend said well you know we're pretty lucky it's happening with covid and i said how could this be lucky? And she said, well, it's not, it's not, you know, the, the, the black plague, you know, it's not Ebola. So while this is going on, we're learning how to deal with it. We're developing techniques to react, respond to the, this, uh, this, you know, biological attack on us. And I went, wow, that's, that's true. And then, you know, just the other day, you know, when, when you're looking around, everybody before they came up with, with the vaccines and with their 90, 95 percent thing said, well, yeah, usually a vaccine 50, 55 percent, yeah. which is true. But because of of um, advance in understanding RNA, because of advance in un understanding uh, computers, uh, computers being able to go through testing millions of times faster than we, we can do it, you know, by hand. 
that's going to completely change the future. That one thing is going to change the future amazingly. I'm, within the next three years, we're going to see this, right? And though these are the only like new questions, or at least kind of newish questions. And so science fiction deals with questions like that. You know, what happens when a, a computer can answer all of our testing like that? You know, rather than you know, seven years of, of study of it. And I'm going, whoa, this is this is great. This is wonderful. And and every once in a while, when I'm dealing with that kind of those kinds of questions and things, I go write science fiction. You know, I'd also argue that I I, I actually think writing mystery, which you've done a lot of, is is also a, a genre which requires a lot of intelligence. <laughs> you know, it's like like what comes first, the crime or the culprit? I don't know, but. You know, speaking of that writer's room, you know, you you made headlines last year when you resigned from the team of Star Trek Discovery after a colleague complained about you saying the N-word while sharing a personal anecdote, which I'm going to full disclosure say I think was ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, you pinned an op-ed about this in The Times and you defended free speech saying the worst thing you can do to citizens of a democracy is silence them. Given recent events in our democracy do you think people are playing maybe a little fast and loose with free speech? Well, you know, it's, I mean, certainly, yes. But on the other hand, I think that, you know, we're greatly being limited mm -hmm. uh, by, by what we can say and how we say things and, and what freedom of, of speech actually is. To be able to say what you, what you think or what you feel, not what somebody else likes or doesn't like, you know. And that's, I think it's a, it's a really big issue. You know, I think that we should watch our own speech. You know, I mean, you know, watching Trump and watching what he's doing, it's, you know, it's, it's really detrimental, not only to democracy, but to a polity, just to, for us to, to be able to live. We need to trust, you know, where we're living. Now, Trump and, and a lot of his followers have, have traded place with black people. Because, you know, we've never been able to do it. I was on, a, on a, an internet, uh, a, you know, internet television shows, me and five journalists. I have no idea what I was doing there, but it was me and these five journalists. Maybe you have to convince the American people to, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was also the only black person. And at one point, somebody asked me and I said, well, you know, I mean, listen, I don't like Trump. I don't want him to be president. I, you know, this is a bad thing. I said, but, you know, as far as fake news, I said, you know, I'm a black man in America. I've been listening to fake news for 400 years. <laughs> You know, uh, most black people don't trust that I know who don't trust America or if they do trust it now, they're not going to trust it at some point up along the way. And I know that, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. um, and and I think it's not a good thing that, you know, that we have to live like that and that, you know, and now all of a sudden, you know, all these so-called white people are recognizing how bad it is to be a black person because the corporations have cut down all so we don't pay attention to age. We don't pay attention to gender. We don't pay attention to race. We only pay attention to profit. And so that like, so those, you know, so-called white people are getting ripped off as much as we've always been getting ripped off. And, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a tough moment for them. And, you know, I just wish that, you know, they could hear and say, listen, man, we can help you out here because if we work together, we all going to have insurance. We all going to have, you know, a way to, you know, to, to make a life and to retire from a life. Exactly. It's sad that more people don't see the commonality that we all have there. The fact that we're all we're all trapped in the same messed up system. That's true. <laughs> but, 
But um, we we dug into the roots, you know, our crates, our archives, and you know, we do yes, <laughs> digital crates. <laughs> yeah, we dug into the digital crates, and you've done several interviews with the root in the past. And one of the quotes that stood out to me from a previous interview you did was this one, quote, I feel a responsibility of talking about the people I come from, many of them being Black people, end quote, after which you clarified a responsibility makes it seem like something else, like something hard, but it's something wonderful. It's a labor of love. Yeah, sure. (laughs) You have been (laughs) largely credited with creating and centering Black male heroes in your work. Why is this in particular a labor of love for you? Well, you know, I learned how to be myself, mostly, you know, from Black men in America, just the way I raised and configuration of my family, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, when I read about them in, in books that don't understand or when I see films about them, or even when, you know, you start to pay attention to, you know, because, you know, if you're going to make it out into the media, you're going to have to do what the media wants you to say in order for them to make money. So even how black people re- represent themselves a lot, you know, so, well, you know, I'm, you know, I was watching a thing on Donald Goins last night, you know, and, you know, and all these like pimps are running around saying how great it is to be a pimp, you know, and, you know, I, am not, I love Donald Goins, but still, you know, I, you know, it, it's, it's a weird thing, you know, thinking it's great to be a pimp. So I beat on my woman, you know, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, you know, like, you know, that's a real man. So, oh, okay. Um, but so when I started writing, I was one of the few people writing about black male heroes. A lot of people write about black male protagonists. So, you know, you have people out of Richard Wright, out of Ralph Ellison, even Chester Himes. So Chester's so wonderful, such an incredible writer. But, you know, to, to say, well, this is a hero. This is somebody I identify with. This is somebody who's going to save my culture. This is my John Wayne. You know, this is my Sean Connery. This is my, you know, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's, was, it's such a, a wonderful thing. It feels so exciting to be able to talk about something that I see and feel and that I know that all these other people have seen and do feel. You know, that's that's what's what's I, I feel you know, strong, like easy, but easy wrongs, but not just easy wrongs. Jackson Blue is also a hero in his way. Mouse is also a hero in his way. You know, anybody who will stand up for themselves, you know, and be counted, but still have a moral code that they follow, that the people reading the book can understand, if not agree with, you know, and, and you know, that's just uh, that's that's the whole thing of cre- creating, you know, black male heroes. Women have done it a lot, black women. But that's, an, you know, that's another that's another thing. Well, Walter, it was so amazing to have you with us today on It's Lit. Thank you so much for chit-chatting with myself and Maisha. Yes, you're one of our Black male heroes, if you did not already know. <laughs> I'm sorry I was talking so much. Maybe I could have answered. That's what you're here for. No, that's, you're supposed <laughs> to talk. We're supposed to hear from you. But we can hear more on your masterclass, which I'm really excited about. You know, both Danielle and I do more than write the news. So we're very excited to uh, see what you have to say about the craft. And thank you so much for sharing some of that insight with us today. I hope that that's helpful. You know, I, I do, you know, I do think that everybody should write a novel. It doesn't matter if everybody publishes a novel. I don't care if they do, but if, even if you don't, to write a novel opens yourself uh, to yourself. And I think that that's really important. I love true. That. <laughs> Very true words there. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you.
The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Spread the word. <laughs> and if you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you can find me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a bit about what we're currently reading. Maisha, what are you reading these days? Well, I, I almost want to say it's a mystery <laughs> because we've been talking to uh, Walter Mosley. But uh, I am uh, actually, it is kind of a mystery to most of our readers. You know, one of the beautiful things about hosting a podcast about books is that we get some great galleys. So I am delving into some works that are coming out next year, one of which is The Other Black Girl, which, you know, that's a loaded title. And another one called Black Buck. These are both novels. They are both involve young Black people in the workplace and the kind of corporate shenanigans and weird racial dynamics that can ensue. So I'm really interested, especially because, you know, again, this is coming after this year of us really being able to talk about all these like weird microaggressions and things that we have all known about and talked about for decades. But the rest of the world is waking up too. So I think the time is right. I'm very excited to see how these books do next year. And maybe we will have these authors on the show. Cool. What are you reading? Uh, well, you know, it's only taken me a year to read this. Well, actually, I did read the first chapter when it was in draft, uh, when she was still working on it. But I was so busy with the everything that I didn't get the chance to actually listen. What, what were you doing? Running the route? I was, like, I, what are you I busy? I don't know. I don't know what I was doing. What was I doing? <laughs> So I finally, you know, she sent me the hard copy a few weeks back. So I'm finally reading The Baddest Bitch in the Room by my good friend, Sophia Chang. (laughs) She is the baddest bitch. She's pretty bad. She totally is. It's a memoir. It's about her life in hip hop and so many other, being a mother and mastering like Kung Fu. Like she's, like, she is like an unbelievable person. Like it's hard. She really is. And she just launched a mentorship program for women of color uh, of all ages, predominantly black women. In fact, where she's garnered, she's taken all this incredible experience that she talks about in this book and has basically, you know, used it to form this community of influencers, which I believe includes you, ma'am, to mentor women of all ages. And it's so dope and she's so dope. So yeah, can't recommend that enough because just for the inspiration alone. Yes. So yeah, it's called Unlock Her Potential. And it's amazing. And I've really enjoyed the program so far. And I think she's doing a wonderful job. But, you know, that's it for this week. So thanks so much to you all for listening. And we'll see you next week. We will absolutely see you next week. And until then, keep it lit. Keep it lit.